Good morning. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Jonathan asked me to read Hebrews 1, so we will start with that. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, the Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So it's, it's Thanksgiving, and in about a month it's going to be Christmas. And it's a, it's a really fun time of the year, and we... Um, tying in Sunday school this morning, you know, the tradition of going around the table and saying something you're thankful for, and then we have Christmas, and we have the sermons and the songs and everything about the baby Jesus, and it's, it's really, overall, it's a warm, fuzzy time, and most of us like it, maybe I don't like the schedule, but the rest of it, really like, and, and it's comforting, it's tradition, and there's these things that, that are important, and we think about just the time of the year and being thankful for these temporal things that we have, and a house, and food, and families, and you name it. All those, all those, again, warm, fuzzy things that we're thankful for usually. And then Christmas, and it's the fuzzy time of the baby Jesus and the angels, and probably most of our favorite Bible story. But I just wonder if everybody's like me. And sometimes I just forget to be thankful and understand. And if we, I spend enough time realizing who the God that we serve really, really is. And in my Bible, this chapter is titled The Supremacy of God's Son. And are we, are we realizing in our life, and as I've been on going through different times in the past several years of my life, am I realizing that the Son of God, this is, this is the exact imprint of God the Father. This is, this is the, the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews says. This is the, basically, this is the image, a physical, tangible image of the glory of God. And are we realizing that this God that we're going to be worshiping here's a little baby come Christmas time and, and all these little things that this God is the same God, the power of the universe, it says here. Uh, this power of the universe 
is still speaking um, individually into your life and into my life. That this God who is holding the sun and the planets and all this in place is still worried about just every little thing that's in my individual life. And so I just wanted to um, encourage us, we're here to worship today, that it's not, we're not just thankful for these small things and the little things, but we're grateful that the God that we do serve and the Jesus that we are is the image of the powerful God who did create the universe and yet reigns supreme, but he cares about uh, each of us in our individual lives. So I think we're going to go to prayer. Zach, I'm going to call on you, but do we have any prayer requests this morning? So pray for Cephas and Hannah and Haiti as a country uh, for the violence and So I had everybody that is involved also with getting the food to where it needs to go, and it will make it to the hands of the people that need it.
thank you for giving us um, the opportunity through Jesus to, to have a relationship with you. And Father, as has been stated here this morning, there is a, a, a cry of our hearts for our friends, Cephas and Hannah, and for the brothers and sisters and community people there in Haiti, obviously that we are uh, aware of. And Father, there, there is a specific goal in mind today that has been laid out soon be delivered. And, and Father, we pray that your presence, by your strength and, and with your uh, mercy, to go with those that are transporting that food that would be a, a source of, of comfort for those that are receiving it. Father, there has been a, a lot of death in that small country, uh, the turmoil that has been faced. And, and Father, we just lift them to you, knowing that you are far more aware.
Good morning, everyone. Why don't we start out with a word of prayer? Lord, we come before you in, uh, in, in a spirit of thankfulness and how you've provided for us this year and how thankful for we, we are for your work in our lives. Lord, we ask you to be with our time together today as we look at your word. And as Connor mentioned, we talk about the supremacy of your son, the exalted Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, that we don't have to fear. For we know the one who conquered death. We ask you to be with Cephas and Hannah as they travel to deliver food. Give them safety and safety to those who are going to take it the rest of the way. Lord, I ask you to work in the heart of the community as you have been, and I ask you to work in the heart of the gangs. Lord, that there's a better way. There's a way, Lord, that's after you. Lord, that you would cease the violence, the hatred, the thievery, the things that destroy lives. Instead, we would see restoration in your kingdom grow. And uh, start that work in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, please turn in your Bibles. We're going to start out in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Um, I uh, title the sermon, The Arbiter of Truth. This is part of what I share when we travel. And it's one of the conclusions that has made one of the largest impacts in my life and has altered the course of my wife and I in the direction we choose. Now, I, through God's mercy, has, have made some really wonderful relationships over the last few years. And one of those relationships is with a church historian. And uh, he is a man of well, he's well studied and he uh, knows quite a bit, much more than I do, much more, uh, much more than I do anyway. And we were speaking over coffee, and he was discussing, when we look at the Christian world today, regardless of what background you come from, there are some different theological systems, but there's three major theological systems that you're going to encounter. The most common theological system is called dispensationalism. It's almost the de facto position. It's the position that, that his people usually identify with. It's the position that um, the Left Behind series books is, are dispensational books. Okay? It's, it's the idea that God interacts with people through different dispensations in different ways. And then you also have, outside of dispensation, you have a little smaller category, but still prominent, known as covenantalism. Now, these are your major reform teachers. Now, John MacArthur would be considered a dispensationalist, but other reform teachers like Alistair Begg and a, a few others would be known as covenantalists. And they would see that the Old Covenant is joined with the New Covenant, and, and they believe that God works through covenants, the key word there being covenant. So if you take dispensationalism and you boil it down to one word, it comes down to Israel. Israel is the prime focus of dispensationalism. If you go to covenantalism and you boil it down to its single word, it would come back to covenant. The Bible breaks down into covenants. 
The position that I have come to, I'm going to represent the, probably the most minor position, but it is the position that's held by most Anabaptist churches, and that would be a Christocentric um, view of theology. And the idea of that theology is that theology and revelation of God was found most preeminently in Jesus. So in Christ, we have the perfect revelation of God. As Connor was saying earlier, the supreme witness of the Son, the supremacy of the Son, he said, as he was reading through Hebrews 1, he, he said that he's the exact impression of his nature, the exact imprint, the exact image of his person, Jesus, in his person is the most perfect representation of God. And as such, my understanding of theology and the Bible have to fit who Jesus is. And if you boil down this form of thinking, you come back to one central word, and that would be Christ. Now, this meant a lot to me because I would have grown up in very dispensational-minded Baptist churches that, um, and I would have grown up in this setting, and I would, have, I would have adopted this theology because this is the de facto position. And I remember when I was reading through the Bible the first time and the times afterwards, I would come to passages such as 1 Timothy 6, 3, and where Paul says, because the dispensational position would emphasize Pauline, and they would say we follow Jesus by following Paul. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if a man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, now another thing for um, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud knowing nothing but doting about questions of strifes of words whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. The point here that Paul's making is Paul saying, I am building on the teachings and the revelation that Jesus gave us. And I grew up and I went to a Bible college that says, listen, their red words hold no more weight than the black words. So we would have emphasized outside of Christ where now I emphasize the person, teachings, and life of Jesus. We, I exalt those, him because he's the perfect revelation of the Father. And off of that, I understand the rest of the New Testament and I understand the rest of the Old Testament. So just to kind of give you where I'm going at. I know over the years I've had the opportunity to defend the deity of Christ, and I've done so passionately in some cases. But one of the most mysterious teachings of Scripture is that of the person of Christ, the apostles, and they spoke about the greatness of who Christ was. And we heard a little bit about that from, that from Connor this morning, about who he is in regards to the author of Hebrews. And I'm going to read to you a couple quotes from Paul, and I want you to hear what he says of Christ in regards of, of the greatness of Christ, where Ephesians 1, I'm just going to read to you, Ephesians 1, 19-23 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word, who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him on his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is, in, uh, which is to come. He hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What an amazing, exalting passage of Jesus. And then in Colossians, one of the most um, important passages about the person of Christ, in Colossians 1, Paul says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Remember that word preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. We have entire ministries today that are built to defend the person of Jesus. And I'm thankful for one them, for them. And we know that Christ is the cornerstone of the church and our faith. But that means more than what I think we think it means. Now, when I would talk to evangelical Christians, your main, you're just your main Christians, and they would say things like, there's no difference between you and me. We both follow Jesus. There's no theological differences. You make it too big a deal out of this stuff. But when you get down to the basic understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, there are some significant differences and differences that we should be willing to discuss, differences that we should be willing to point out, differences that we should be willing to understand. Because it's demonstrably true that there are some differences. And one of the distinctions that I argue that makes more of an Anabaptist understanding of faith different from evangelicalism is that Jesus is the arbiter of truth. Meaning that in Jesus, his life and teachings is the divine mind of God and thus preeminent in how we interpret and understand the scriptures. So I will, cannot understand what God has written without understanding God's son. I do not believe that the scriptures are just isolated writings segregated from the revelation in Christ, but we have many theologians that treat it as such. They treat it as such. You have Jesus over here and you have the scriptures over here. And they, yes, they touch in the gospels, but they're not necessarily the same. And I would say that you cannot understand the writings of scripture without the person of Jesus as the arbiter of that truth. Scripture, or Christ is the supreme revelation of God in Colossians. I'm going to be going around quite a bit as, I, as we speak today. But in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 10, I know you all, I told you all go to John and haven't even got there yet. I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. In 2, 9 and 10, it says, for in him, talking of Christ, dwelleth all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. I'm going to stop there. But listen to what he says here. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The very nature of who God is was found in the person of Jesus. Not just for a specific time that was before our day, but for all generations. Pastors and authors regularly make the claim that the Bible is the final authority for the believer. I have a big book on my uh, books, plural, 
on my bookshelf that says, I have one particular that says final authority. It's talking about the final authority of the scriptures. If you read conservative um, Christian writings, they're going to say that the final authority for all faith and practice is the Bible. Man, I have proclaimed that from the pulpit. The final authority from the, all faith and practice is the Bible. Okay? And they would make that claim. And because of that authority that it has in the life of the believer, we take certain positions. Positions that we would agree with because we all hold that the Bible's authoritative. And it is a widespread belief held by many conservative evangelical Christians that all claims of truth are settled by the scriptures. Something that I still would agree with. That all claims of truth must be settled by the If you say something's true, that this Bible, that this word, the scripture says is not true, I'm going to go with it, not you. What does scripture say of itself? Scripture teaches of itself that it is the special, inspired revelation of God to which it is. And we should cherish, read, memorize, and study it. We know God through his word. I get to have a relationship with God through the word of God. When God speaks, he speaks through his word. And in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16... Paul tells Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm in the wrong chapter. But we see here, we, we, but that still makes it up. But three, sorry, chapter three, verse 15 and 16. And that from, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that the scriptures that make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he makes his claim in verses 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's where all, all those... That's the one Greek word that almost every pastor friend I know knows. Theonoustos. All scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos. It's all God-breathed. It's all inspired. That's the word they used here in the King James. It is inspired by God. And what is it? it is profitable. For what? For doctrine. For reproof. For correction. For instruction in righteousness. Doctrine is their pattern of belief. For reproof is the negative form of correction. Correction is a positive. Don't go that way. Go this way. And instruction in righteousness. We have everything we need as a believer in the scriptures. The scriptures are sufficient for the disciple of Christ. The scriptures are sufficient for the believer, for the follower of Jesus. They are inspired and breathed out by God. And then we read in 2 Peter 1, where he says, where Peter tells us, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation or any private origin. It didn't come out, a man didn't dream it up one day. For the, pro for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We're starting to see how God inspired the scriptures. The Holy Ghost would come and, and fill a man, a holy man, and he would write, not his words, but the very words of God. When we come up and we read this word at home, I'm reading the words of God. When I preach it from the pulpit, I'm preaching the words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit for his church, for his people. So the Bible is the special revelation of God, the very words of God revealing the truth, revealing the design, the plan of God, and is the revelation we have of the divine. Everything that I know of God, that's specific, I find from the scriptures. I find from the Bible. Um, some of you may have noticed, we, I believe that there are three basic revelations of God. You have general revelation, 
you have special revelation, personal revelation, general revelation, is when we look out on creation, we can see that there's a creator. We see that he's intelligent. We see that he's a designer. We see that he's a God of order. We know certain things by looking at creation. Then we go from general revelation to special revelation. This is revelation that God specifically orchestrates for us to have. Special revelation is the Bible. So God specially organizes this revelation for us to have and have here in the scriptures. But then you go beyond that, and then there's a third form of revelation, which is personal revelation. And this personal revelation comes as a person. And what's so great about personal revelation is doctrine is great when it's written on a page. Doctrine is better when it's lived out in the life. Doctrine finds its fullest expression and form when it's lived out in a person, that person be Jesus. I believe the scriptures to be preserved and inspired and preserved and sufficient for the believer to know God, his will and his design, and we ought to study it fully. And they are sufficient for the disciple of Jesus. And that is a big question of our day. I wish I could spend some time there, the sufficiency of the scriptures for the disciple of Christ. But the Bible gives us an arbiter. He's a key, if you will. There are hundreds of denom Christian denominations today, and they all claim that they're biblical. Oh, we follow the Bible. That's, that's what makes us different from the rest of the world. We follow the Bible. And all of them claim to have their foundation from the Scriptures. But what if the Bible gives us an arbiter? What if the Bible gives us a key and says, you cannot understand what I've written unless you have this arbiter, this, this key to understand it? Now, how am I using this word arbiter? Well, if we look at Scripture as a library revelation, this is not just a book. It's a collection of 66 books. It's a library of revelation. It's a revealing the divine, the divine person, the divine purpose and program. But this library cannot be fully understood without the arbiter. Now, how am I using arbiter here? Arbiter here, I'm using Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary defines it as a person or agency whose judgment or opinion is considered authoritative. So when you're thinking of arbiter, when you hear me use the word arbiter, I'm using this definition, a person or agency whose judgment or opinion is considered authoritative. Basically, if I'm reading a book and I say, I think the author meant this, and the author standing there, the author can say, no, I meant that by what I wrote there. And what we have in Christ is an authoritative key or authoritative person or authoritative agency by which we can understand the rest of the revelation of Scripture. He is the final authority for the disciple and the personal revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So the Bible's sufficient to bring us to Christ. And we get that at John 5, 38 through 39, where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and says, you study the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but they are them that bear witness of me. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. But Jesus is the authoritative to interpret everything the Bible says. Now that's the crux of what I want to tell you this morning. That Jesus is authoritative to interpret everything the Bible says. Now, this is where we're going to go back to John 1. I've made some claims today that I want to be able to show from the scriptures about why I believe that Jesus is the arbiter of truth. 
And that's where John 1, 17, 18, we do read, um, I will be getting down to verse 17, 18, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. We understand that word there, meaning it's the Greek word logos, which means basically they believe it's the central idea of, it's the, we call it the mind of God or the central principle of the universe, that he says that this word was God, and the same was the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And his light shines in darkness, and darkness comprehend it not. The idea of the Logos is it's a central principle in the universe. How this universe ticks is found in Christ. Now, I want to go down to verse 17 and 18, where, where John is making a claim here. And he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, let me tell you what I, why I think that's a tremendous verse. Because for one, I think Moses is making a distinction. He says, yes, Moses gave us the law. The law came through Moses. God revealed to Moses and Moses gave the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus. The law is, let's say it, limited. Just like you cannot get saved by following the law. It's also limited in its purpose. Moses, though a holy man and was given revelation by God and he delivered the law, Jesus, however, is the only begotten Son of God. Do, you, do we understand the special nature of who Jesus was? Do we understand that there are, there are entire ministries trying to convince people that Jesus was not just another prophet? He wasn't just another holy man. He was not just another teacher. He was the very Son of God. And it is through Jesus that both grace and truth came to the world. No one has seen God. No one has seen God. But yet, this Jesus was in the bosom, or is in the bosom, of the Father. Now, what's it mean by bosom here? It means in His presence. Jesus resides in the very presence of the Father. He's at the Father's side. You could even say that He's the one that sat on the Father's lap. He's in the very presence of the Father. Moses is limited because Moses, though given and inspired by the Holy Spirit, never could sit and see God face to face. He couldn't handle it, if you remember. Couldn't do it. But yet Jesus was in the very presence of the Father. And that means something here. He's contrasting here Moses and Jesus, saying Jesus is a better revelation. Now, when it says, He hath declared him... It can also be translated has made him known. And it's, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's, it's from the word exegeomai, which is where we get the word exegetical or exegete. And exegete is to explain, is to understand, is to articulate what is meant by what is said. When, when, when you hear someone in theological circles where they say, I'm an exegete of the scriptures. He says, basically, I'm an interpreter of the scriptures. I'm telling you what I believe that this scripture means by what it says. That's what an exegete is. And what is he saying here? He hath declared him. Jesus is the exegete, the interpreter, the, the, um, the interpreter of the Father. He is the explainer of God. Jesus is the perfect, like, we, like Connor said earlier, Jesus is the perfect image and nature of God. And Jesus reveals and explains the Father. So any interpretation that I get of God, and any understanding that I get of God, that contradicts what was revealed in Jesus, I'm wrong. 
And any theologian that tells you that God is someone other than who Jesus said he was, they're wrong. So Jesus is a very explainer, interpreter, and exegete of the Father. And that takes us over back to the Hebrews 1 passage that I had Connor read for us this morning. And I'm only going to be reading the first three verses here. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he's appointed the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the majesty, at the majesty on high. Now, what is the author Hebrews saying here? He's recognizing the inspiration and the divine origin of the Old Testament. God, who at Sunday spines in diverse manners, spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets. God spoke through the prophets. He's recognizing the divine origin of the Old Testament. But he says in verse 2, Hath in these last days spoken us to us by who? His Son. God has today spoken to us by His Son. We know that, you know, obviously that is Christ. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the world. He's reiterating a little bit of John 1 here. And then verse 3 makes some very hard declarations. He's the brightness of his glory. Do we not understand that brightness and glory are basically synonyms? The glory is the expression of something. When we talk about the glory of the sun, we're talking about the brightness of the sun. It's the expression of what the sun is. That's glory. When I talk about, we talk about well, the glory of the moon, the very expression of what the moon is, that is the, that's what it is. So when we talk about the brightness of the glory of God, Jesus is very much the expression of who God is in human form. He's the very expression of God's image. He's very, the very expression of God's nature. He's the very expression of God's person. What a statement. He's the brightness of his glory. He's the very essence of his glory. He's the express image of his person, the very express exact image of his nature, exactly who the Father is, a God and he expresses it perfectly in, his, in Christ. He's the perfect image of his person. And thus, I do believe, even from this passage, we can, we can articulate that Christ is the perfect revelation of the Father. And now I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm just going to be reading to you verses 3 through 6, because Paul says something quite astounding here too and again this is a little different than how i normally would share but i want to make this case i want to if i want i want to walk away from today with you with the firm conviction or firm understanding at least of who christ is and what he what he is to how we understand the scriptures so second corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 6 says but if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Now, Paul's right there. The glorious gospel of Christ that can also be translated the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel of who Jesus is, who is the image of God. See, that's, it gives a definition. Who is the, what is the glory of Christ? He's the very image and nature of God personified. 
should shine on them. So, read the, so the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He's trying to convince people to understand that Jesus is the perfect representative of the Father, that he is God in the flesh. So the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then verse 5 says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul says, why did Paul say, all I know is Christ and him crucified? Because Jesus Christ is all that we preach. Now, verse 6 is the big verse. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Hmm. As God called forth in Genesis 1 and said, Let there be light, and light came out of nothing. As in John 1, when God brought light and life into the world and called it forth and it came, so God has brought the light of revelation of the knowledge of who he is in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me read that last verse. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, John 1, uh, Hebrews 1, hath Shined in our hearts to, get to give what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. What? The light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God. How do I know what God is? How do I know who God is? Because he gave it where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That matters. Because if I say Jesus is something other, or if I say God is something other than what Jesus has revealed, I am wrong. The knowledge of the glory of God, the expressed person of who he is, what he revealed himself to be, is found in the person of Jesus. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this authority, I'm going to go, uh, go with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, we're, we're reading about, um, it, it's the chapter with the Great Commission in it. And I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28. Starting at verse 18 of 28, it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. What is he saying in verse 18? He's saying, listen, all Power or all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. What are we talking about? Where does the authority lie? The authority lies in Christ. So when I, if I come, or if I say, well, the authority of the scriptures, it's the authority of Jesus in the scriptures. It's the authority of Jesus with the scriptures. The scriptures were never meant to stand without the arbiter. The arbiter is the one who has the authority to interpret the scriptures. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, and this is what he says, go there and teach all nations and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe things whatsoever I have commanded you. What's the, what's the commission? Is that we teach them to observe the teachings of Jesus. And from that, the rest of the scriptures are illumined and enlightened and understood. And 
And Lord, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the world. Amen. Jesus is the arbiter of truth, the explainer of the divine, the exegete of the Father, the declarer of God. And I cannot truly understand the scriptures without the divine witness of the Son of God. Now I want you to go back 10 chapters to, or 11, back to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8 says, After six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While yet he spake, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And Jesus came. Oh, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Now, what's going on here? Jesus takes the top three disciples, Peter, James, and John. He leads them on a high part. He separates them out from the rest, leads them up there, and he's transfigured before them. Okay? He's revealing to them his glory about who he is. And while he's up there, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, who is Moses and Elijah? Moses, I believe, here represents the law. Okay? And then I see Elijah, and he represents the prophets. So you have Christ, you have Moses, you have Elijah. They all stand in there together. And Peter, and, 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 and I feel like with the best of intentions, falls on his face. He goes, it's so good for us to be here. We're going to build three sanctuaries. We're going to build a sanctuary to the law. And then we're going to build a sanctuary to the prophets. And Jesus, we're going to build a sanctuary just for you. You're going to have a sanctuary just for you, Jesus. That great three sanctuaries. Law, prophets, Jesus. Isn't that great? And the Father steps in and says, Hold up! This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Listen to him. Moses was a holy man inspired by the Holy Ghost and filled and wrote Scripture. He was a holy man moved by God to wrote Scripture. Elijah and the prophets were holy men filled with the Holy Ghost and they wrote Scripture. But this is the divine Son of God. The perfect image of who God is. This is the one that we are to exalt and worship and understand. I can't understand Moses correctly without Christ. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And if someone said, are you saying the teaching of Jesus should hold more weight in the life of the Bible than the teachings of Moses? Yes. So if you don't believe me, Believe the majestic witness of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. What a witness of the Father to the Son. Now if you wouldn't mind, turn to John 5. John 5. 
John Fye, I referenced this earlier, but I'm going to go ahead and look at it a little bit deeper now. Uh, starting in verse 37 of John 5 says, And the Father himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him, ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. The scriptures are not an end. The scriptures are a means. The scriptures are a means, not an end. And how so many, including myself, get caught up in the thinking that the scriptures are an end. The scriptures are a means to the end. The scripture is a pathway to the bread of life. They're the path. They're not the conclusion. He said, you search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. The scriptures are to lead me to be like Christ. If I am studying the Bible, if I'm researching scriptures, if I'm devouring theology, and it's not making me more like the Son of God, then I'm missing the point of why they exist. They bear witness of Christ. But those who have Christ have God's words abide in them. And they have life. Now, I want to kind of finish off with talking about this relationship of Jesus with the scriptures. We are told that the scriptures are a two-edged sword dividing soul and spirit. And if the scriptures are a soul, or if the scriptures are a sword, who is the one that yields that sword? Save Jesus Christ. Isn't he the one that wields the double-edged sword? In Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4, 12-13 should sound familiar. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open before the, uh, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews 12 said the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and yet it is for the purpose of the one who yields it. And the one who yields it is God. And the one who yields it is Christ. Just to read a couple more scriptures. In 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, notice it's the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Okay? What is the sword? What is the spirit of his mouth? That's the word of God, the scriptures. And they come out of the mouth of Christ. We read in Revelation. I'm going to read through a few passages in Revelation to make some concluding thoughts. Um, in Revelation 1, we read in verse 16. And Revelation 1.16 says, And he hath in his right hand, talking of Christ, and he hath in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. 
Out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword. And I am not out of bounds to say that Jesus wields the sword of the scriptures. Jesus wields the sword of the word of God. In 2.12, we hear another witness. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. That's Christ. He wields the sword. And then 1915. 1915. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he may should smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron, and shall tread a winepress of the fierceness of the and wrath of Almighty God. Again, with the sword coming from Christ. The word of God is understood through the person, and that person is Christ. I am in no way undermining the scriptures when I say that they must, let me say that differently. I am in no way undermining the word of God when I say that the word of God must be understood through the lens of the word of God, Jesus Christ. The accusation is, John, don't you think you're, you're undermining the authority of the scriptures? Absolutely not. Because without Christ, these scriptures mean nothing to me. But yet in Christ, his word has weight. In fact, we're giving a basis for the authority of the scripture in the life of the disciple of Christ, the life of the believer through Jesus. So all true interpretations of scripture come through the life and teachings of Jesus. And thus all true faith must have Christ as its center. And all true understanding and interpretation has Christ as its cornerstone. Jesus is not just the cornerstone of the church in the sense that he's the cornerstone of salvation and cornerstone of the building. He's also the cornerstone by which we understand the writings of Scripture. I mean, Jesus' cornerstone, foundation by the apostles and the prophets. How can I understand the apostles and prophets? Going back to the cornerstone. For those who've built houses, you have this cornerstone that doesn't move. It's the, it's the one, it's the one, of course, they rejected, but it's, it's the one they base everything else off of. So as I read the apostles and prophets, I have to keep going back to the cornerstone, who is Christ, and that even goes for my interpretation. So Jesus in his life and teachings informs the Christian life for all generations. And I say that specifically because some different Christian traditions will say that Jesus' teachings are for a past time or for a future time, but they will say it doesn't necessarily mean for today. But yet the true um, Jesus' life teaching informs the Christian life for all generations. He is the cornerstone of the church and our understanding of the scriptures from his teachings, the rest of the New Testament is built and the Old Testament is illumined. The New Testament, Paul's writings from the book of Romans on, is not written in spite of what happened in the Gospels. It's men, it was written with the Gospels as its corner. You cannot separate the epistles from the Gospels. And from that aspect in the New Covenant writings, we can look back and then the Old Testament is illumined. Now, one last passage of scripture, and that's in Hebrews 12, where we read that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so many great cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the uh, right hand of the throne of God. 
What's he saying here? Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Well, why, why would he say that? Because if our faith is built in such a way that it disregards or nullifies or waters down the teachings of Jesus, then we're no longer running that race as faithfully as Jesus did. He is the author of our faith. When I want to know what my faith is all about, I look to Christ. When I want to know where my faith is going, I look to Christ. I look to Jesus. And when I look about everything that's in between and how to understand it, I go to Christ. The question I have to finish up with, is he the author and finisher of your faith? Is he your arbiter of truth? I hope the answer is yes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. Again, we lift up the needs of this congregation, the needs of Cephas and Hannah as they go deliver goods, and they're actually um, living out um, such a wonderful um, calling there in Haiti and such despicable events that are taking place. Lord, I ask you to fill us with your spirit and lead us in such a way that we would um, follow in your footsteps, that we live sacrificially, that we love our enemies, that we would um, find true faith in you. As we gather with our families, I ask you help us to be good witnesses, that we'd live out your ways before them, nor that they would find an appeal in our words and our lifestyles that say, I want to follow that Jesus too. Or may you be glorified this week and as we are thanking, being thankful for so many things, Help us to be thankful for the one who gave us life and gives us all good things. And help us share that thankfulness with others. In Jesus' name, amen.